We are here this morning, aren't we? Yeah? All right, some of you are here. We got to get the rest of you caught up, all right? We are here this morning, and we are, we are together, and it is a good thing to be together. Amen? Amen. See, here's the thing. Um, I want to start off just being honest. Can we be honest with one another today? Is that okay? Yeah? Okay, here's, here's the deal. I want to go ahead and engage in a conversation today, all right? I want to engage in, in a little bit of a dialogue uh, with this community. And in case you are unaware on how dialogues kind of work and conversations kind of happen, this is going to be more of a two-way street. Do you understand where I'm going with this? This is going to be kind of a, a back-and-forth type of thing, a, a, a you and then a me, a me and then a you type of, of deal here. And so what, what I'm basically getting at, in case this has been thinly veiled for you, you is if you hear something, if you experience something, if, if the spirit of the Lord kind of moves in you today and, and you feel that, I want to give you the permission right here and now to go ahead and have that dialogue with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and some of you, uh, perhaps you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I don't expect that the spirit of the Lord will move in me today. Um, I, I, I'm in a pretty good place. Well, here's the deal. Perhaps God brought you here and sat you next to someone who needs to hear from the Lord. And so would you just go ahead and agree on their behalf? You know what I mean? And so we're going to do a lot of dialoguing today. We're going to, we're going to have some conversation. We're going to be able to talk to one another and not just you to me and, and me to you, but you're going to talk to one another. So if you're uncomfortable with that, I have good news for you. Get over it uh, because we're going to go ahead and do it anyways. You understand what I'm saying? So uh, if you're ready, if you're excited to be here, then we're going to go ahead and begin. See, we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes and today we're going to be in chapter 11. I'm going to read to you what it says and then we're going to dive into it. All right. Uh, so Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and this is what it says. The title is cast your bread upon the waters. He opens, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for, you know, not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where that tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Would you pray with me? Father, we just want to give you right now. Everything that, that is here, everything that is right now, we want to give it to you, God. We give you our hearts. We lay everything down. Father, would you take away all distractions? Would you take away all that stuff that we tend to carry with us? God, we want to hear from you. So, Jesus, we pray for clarity in your words today. God, would we leave here transformed, changed, moved by your spirit so that we can look a little bit more like you than when we came in here. Jesus, this is our heart and our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I titled today's message, 
you bring the bread. You bring the bread. You'll notice on the handout that you received when you walked in that on, on the side where there's normally fill in the blanks and titles of sermons that there is absolutely nothing there. And here's why. See, they asked me earlier what it was that I wanted to title the message. And I said, I have no clue. And they said, well, what do you want us to put on the bulletin? And I said, mm, how about nothing? And they're like, the word nothing? I said, no, I mean literally nothing. Don't put anything on there. I'm not sure what God's going to do yet. And, and later on this week, I found out what it is that God's going to do and uh, should, be, should be pretty awesome. But what he revealed to me is, hey, here's what I want you to title the message. Put down, you bring the bread. So write that down on the sheet in front of you. And it may not make sense to you right now. But it will by the time we're finished today. And, and why don't we just get used to talking with each other right now? Why don't you touch three people around you and just say, hey, you bring the bread. All right, go ahead and do that right now. Contact three people. You bring the bread. Oh, yeah. You bring the bread. There we go. There we go. We're getting to know each other today. Now, some of you have no clue what you just did. Others of you now feel a weight of responsibility to bring some sort of pastry to an event that you're not sure when or where is happening, but you're going to make sure you do it. There's some responsible people in this audience. I know they're here. And you responsible people are like, wait, what did I just commit to? I'm not sure if I have time for this today. We'll get to it. I promise. It will make sense. Now, here's the deal. Can we talk about the church today? Can we have a conversation about the church? And, and, and see, if you're anything like me, then you, you believe, like I do, that the church is still something special. Amen? I mean, the church is something special. And I understand if you go out of this place and you have conversations in the world and you pay attention to the news and you read the articles in, in the media and, and you pay attention to the blogs and you read Twitter and all this stuff, it's going to tell you that there's kind of something wrong with the church, you know? And a lot of people have been down on the church thinking that, man, with all the stuff that's going on today, I wish the church would do a little bit more. Man, with all the stuff that's going on today, I wish the church wouldn't kind of respond the way that it is. And, and depending on who you talk to and what you read and what you pay attention to, some people wish the church would do a little bit more. Some people wish the church would stop doing what it is doing. And man, I got to be honest with you. I still love the church. If it wasn't for the church, man, the wedding that I had wouldn't have been the wedding that I had. Because of me, we invited over 500 people to come to my wedding. I know. 300 and something of them showed up. It was insane. And my wife and I, we, neither of us come for money. We didn't have any money for this event. And we had 300 people. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's go ask some people in the church. What can we do? Man, some gracious people. And if it wasn't for the church... They gave us the spot where we got married in. This giant property out in Lincoln with a lake on it. I got married on a lake. I didn't have to pay anything for it because of the church. We had people come in that we had known and created relationships with. And they donated food. And they donated time. And they donated chairs. And they donated tables. And this is all because of the church. I tell people, listen, you may not be down with Jesus quite yet. But you better get to know his church. Because there are some serious benefits to being involved in the church. Thank you. I mean, this is a great place. Now, if you're like me, then you still believe that the church is indeed the hands and feet of God, that the church is indeed the bride of Christ, that the church is actually the bearers of truth and hope and life. And if that's the case, then, man, some of us do need to have an honest conversation with at least ourselves, if not one another. Because if we're being honest with ourselves and the church is indeed the bride of Christ, then some of us haven't exactly been a very good wife. If the church is indeed the hands and feet of Christ, then 
some of us may want to work out a little bit more. Because as I look at the church, as I look at what what it is and how special it is, I'm realizing that we are the bearers of truth and hope and life. And yet a lot of us are still sticking to where we are and not bearing that out into the world like we should. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I was uh, I was a different person than you see standing here today. Um, I'm not quite the person today that I was back then. And, and two and a half years ago, it might be safe to say that I was almost twice the person I am today, than, or twice the person then, than I am today. See, two and a half years ago, I began kind of a, a new chapter in my life, and I decided to take on the fantastic world of physical fitness. And, and what an exciting journey that is, lifting heavy things over and over and over and over again. I have this new thing that I tell people. I go into the, the gym and they say, hey, man, how's it going? What are you up to today? I said, oh, you know, lifting heavy things over and over again for no reason at all. They look back at me and say, yep, I hear you. Now, here's the thing. Two and a half years ago, this whole thing started kind of by accident, if we're being honest. I was sitting on the couch next to my wife, and we were making comments. We had some friends in the living room, you know. And you know how conversations go when you're in front of your friends? You start saying things that you wouldn't normally say if it was just your spouse or significant other with you. Because, you know, you're trying to impress your friends so that we're talking, we're making jokes. And I make a comment. I said, if I wanted to, I could run a half marathon right now. And my wife, being the wonderful woman that she is, decided to not let that little comment go. She turns to me. She says the one thing that any spouse could say to their partner and challenge them on that. She looks back at me and says, no, you can't. (laughs) Now, I'm a pretty competitive guy. And I know that my wife knows this about me, but even knowing that she knows doesn't still stop it from happening. And I look back at my wife, and I knew what she was doing, and yet I still suckered myself into this trap. And I said, oh, really? Tell you what, when's the next half marathon? She looks back at me, and she says, looks here like it's in March. I look back at her, and I said, I'll do it. Now, here's the thing. If you want me to do something I wouldn't ordinarily want to do on my own, all you have to do is tell me that I can't do it. And I'll go ahead and do it. And that's what my wife was doing. And so I looked back at her. I said, I'll do it. Now, my hope was that we could forget about this conversation. A few days would go by and nothing would come of it. My wife saw that one coming. And within two minutes on that couch with her little handy-dandy smartphone, which I'm thinking about getting rid of now, she signed me up for that half marathon. She said, all right, you're signed up. Better start running. (laughs) Now, I started training, and it was November at the time. And if you've ever started running in November, it is cold outside. Now, I'm a native Californian, and I have kind of a a moderate weather temperature gauge that I like to stick to. I don't like it too hot, and I don't like it too cold. And to me, November is too cold. And yet we had to get up and train. And my day's off for Thursday and Friday, and we would wake up early in the morning on Thursday at like 7 in the morning and go running. Everyone laughs when I say it's early at 7 in the morning. It is early. Nothing good happens at 7. Anyways, we start running. We start off, and it's kind of one of those things. My wife turns to me, and she says, all right, we're going to run one mile today. I said, just one. She said, trust me, it'll be a lot, all right? I said, all right, fine. Let's start running. She says, hold on. We're going to walk, build ourselves up to a jog. Then we'll run as long as we can, then taper it down to a jog, and maybe walk a little bit, catch our breath, and then just go back and forth like that. And I said, I'm going to run the whole thing. Watch this. I shot out like a cannon. About two minutes later, I was huffing and puffing, hands on my knees. I couldn't believe how hard running was. But we kept training. 
And see, these things kept coming up every time we wanted to train. And, and situations would arise where it made it inconvenient to go ahead and train. And, and there were circumstances that would, that would arise and make it difficult for us to train. We got to a point where we had to run 8 and 10 miles in our, our week. And, and, and we would get there and, and it was too far to take our girls in the stroller 8 miles worth of running. And so we would have to alternate. And it takes a long time for me to run 8 miles. And so we would have to alternate running schedules. My wife would run at one time, and I'd watch the kids, and then I, she'd come home, and she'd watch the kids while I ran. And all sorts of opportunities came for us to skip the running, but we didn't. And come March, I ran that half marathon, and it was incredible, and I finished it, and I crossed the finish line. And that was awesome. Yeah. Now, here's the deal, though. What started after that was something kind of unexpected. I crossed that finish line, and very shortly after that, I got this crazy idea in my head that I should keep this going. I should join a gym. That's one of the weirdest thoughts anyone could ever have, but I had it, and I joined a gym. And I walk into the gym. I remember the first time I walked in there. I take a look around at everyone in there, and there's all these muscular men with bulging biceps and yoked backs and legs that are so giant they make sounds when the guys walk past you. And it's absolutely incredible. I'm looking at these machines, and I don't understand how they work or how to work out on them. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, I think I spent about 15, 20 minutes total the first time I walked into the gym. And I set this goal for myself, and I said, man, I just want to go like two times a week. And if I can make it two times a week, that'll be successful. And just like in the marathon and training for that, these things would come up. Circumstances would change. Situations would happen. Surroundings would alternate. And, and all of a sudden, I would have these excuses in front of me that would prevent me from going. I'd be tired coming off of work, and I wouldn't want to go in the evening. I'd be too tired waking up in the morning after a long night with the kids, and I wouldn't want to go. But I pushed myself to go. And then I set a new goal of three and four times a week. And now, two and a half years later, I'm standing here today, and I average about five times at the gym every single week. And there's not a thing in this world, I'm sorry, there are very few things in this world that could come up and prevent me from going to the gym. What I have figured out is I'm about a four o'clock worker-outer. That's when I go to the gym, all right? Now, if you've been paying attention to the weather over the past week, you've noticed there is a certain kind of temperature that has been occurring lately around here at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's called 180 degrees. It's like the sun kissed the earth somewhere in California, and it has been baking ever since. And this last Monday, I, I, it was 4 o'clock, and it rolled around, and I get, get dressed. I was in a nice, cool office here in the building, and I get ready to go to the gym. And I make my way out of the office, and I feel the temperature of the sun beating down on me. I go to my gym. It's held in a warehouse. And I walk in there and see my gym. It's in a warehouse. There's no air conditioning in it, and there's one fan. And I found out when I got in there that the one fan we had got kicked over by another gym member, and now it was broke. And so there's a warehouse, gym equipment, and me, and the sun. And I look at the whiteboard and what's expected of us for that afternoon, and I find a list of reasons and situations and things that I don't really want to do. But I think to myself, nah. See, where I want to be is over there. And the only thing that's going to get me from where I am to where I want to be is doing this right here. I can't let these situations, these circumstances, and these surroundings stop me from getting to where I want to be. And isn't it interesting how Paul found so many parallels between our life of faith and our physical fitness? He writes to the early churches and he says, listen, I beat my body into submission so that I can become what it is that the Lord wants me to become. I don't train against the air. I don't box against my own shadow for no reason. There is a purpose in me training in my faith. Faith and physical fitness have a lot to do with each other. 
they, they run kind of parallel. And see, a lot of us like to think that, that maybe if I just have faith, it will automatically grow on its own without ever having to use it. And here's the thing about faith. See, like physical fitness, if faith waits for perfect conditions before it activates, then that faith is useless. It's kind of like so many of us that have that gym membership keychain on our keys, but we don't ever use it. It just kind of chills there. We pull it out and people notice that we have it. Oh, you go, you go to that gym? Well, um, I've been. Uh, on the day they gave me this, actually, was when I, I went. And a lot of us like to carry our faith like it's a keychain to the gym. But we don't ever check in with it. We don't ever go and use it. We don't ever activate that faith. See, the people of this world, they're dead or they're dying. And a lot of us don't realize this, but the walking dead, they kind of have an accurate picture of what's going on out there, spiritually speaking. And we're the ones with the cure. I mean, do we realize that? That's not rhetorical. Do we realize that? And we're having a conversation today. See, it's like the walking dead out there. And we're the ones with the cure, but too often we want to come into buildings like this and bar the doors and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going out there. Those people are jacked up. If I go out there and start telling them about my faith and my Jesus, they're going to eat me alive. Absolutely, they're going to eat you alive. What did you expect was going to happen? See, the Bible tells us that to some we are the, the rich aroma of life, but to others we are the stench of death. You ever smelled a dead thing before? It reeks. Nobody likes the smell of dead stuff. But see, when we carry the gospel, when we carry our faith, when we carry our Jesus out there, to some it's the sweet aroma of life. To others, it's a revelation that the way they've been going is towards death. And one of two things is true. They either need to stop and turn around and come towards life, or they're going to keep smelling what they're smelling. And we can't have that happen. See, Christ came to develop a following of people whose active faith would change the world. Would you touch somebody and say, you are a world changer? Now, come on, we had more energy the first time. This is a good message. Tell somebody, you are a world changer. Tell someone else. That's right. And see, maybe, maybe the imperfection of the conditions around us are what actually make the conditions so perfect for our faith to be active in. Maybe the imperfection of the world around us is actually what makes conditions so perfect for our faith to be activated in. And isn't this how it goes? God places some burning in our hearts. He gives us an assignment, and rarely does this assignment make sense, but we know it's from Him. And then we begin to evaluate the potential of this assignment and the feasibility of its success and failure. And It's here where we begin to notice all of the things around us that become our reason for not moving in the direction that God wants us to go. God, I can't do that. My friends, they wouldn't talk to me anymore if I did that. God, I can't do that. You see, they would fire me if I started proclaiming you in the place that I work at. God, I can't do that. My family doesn't want to hear that kind of stuff when we're sitting at the dinner table. And see, we've got it confused. We think God has hired us to be evaluators of his will instead of the executors of it. Too often we come into this place and God speaks into our hearts and he's trying to lead us to active faith. And we think, all right, God, um, since you told me that, now I get to come alongside you and tell you all the reasons why that isn't going to work out. See, I don't know if you've been paying attention to my situation over here, but the way this works is this way. 
And I know you haven't been doing this for very long, but in my life experience, what I've come to find out is the best method of ministering to other people is to just be like really moral and stuff and wait for them to open up the conversation with me. And God's looking at us and saying, I'm sorry. I must have had it confused. You see, I thought I thought I was the one who set the will and you were the one who executed it. I didn't realize that I gave you a suggestion with which for you to evaluate. But often we confuse ourselves. You see, we think God has hired us to be evaluators of his plans as opposed to the executors of them. And see, God does not desire your opinion about his plans. He desires your obedience. The hard part about following God It's not believing that his scripture is truth. The hard part about following God isn't believing that he is truth. The hard part about following God is entrusting his word enough to put it into action and to act on it in obedience. That's the hard part. It's really easy to agree with scripture. It's really hard to put it into action. We often think the best way to please God and prove our adoration of him is through high-functioning morality and consistent attendance of programmatic ministries. Well, guess what? That's kind of the same logic that Jesus got upset at the Pharisees over, isn't it? See, they thought, like a lot of us do, that, God, what you really are looking for is my ritualistic morality. What you're really looking for is my attendance in your worship programming. And God's sitting here thinking, listen, this is not about a theatrical presentation of what I have in my scripture. This is about motivating you and enticing you into obedience of my word. This is training and equipping. This isn't come and watch and see and agree. This is more than that. Amen. God doesn't want your ritualistic attendance. God doesn't want your new program. God wants your heart, your faithful obedience. It's like James says, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And don't misinterpret this. I'm not preaching a gospel that is works based. I'm not telling you that you can earn your salvation because you can't. The Bible is very clear about that. It says quite clearly that your grace, that your, your salvation is through grace, not something that you earn, but was freely given. And it's out of response to that free gift that we obey God's word. Timothy Keller puts it this way. Faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what truth is despite what you feel. See, situations, surroundings, and circumstances will impact our feelings, but our faith must be greater than our feelings. Our faith has to be greater than our feelings. Turn to three people and say, your faith has to be greater than your feelings. Give it to them. I mean, really give it to them. There's some people in here whose feelings are greater than their faith, and they need to hear this morning. Your faith needs to be greater than your feelings. Oh, we're going to have a conversation today. See, we need to ch- what we need to change isn't our situations, our circumstances, and our surroundings. A lot of us are waiting for God to change the stuff around us. God, when you change my situation, I will obey you. God, when you change my circumstances, I will follow you more. God, when you change my surroundings, it will be easier for me to minister to others. And we keep waiting for God to change the stuff around us. But what you need is not a change in your situation, circumstances, or surroundings. What you need is a change in your perspective. What you need is a change in how you see things. And perspective is everything, is it not? I mean, perspective is everything. Turn to someone. Perspective is everything. I don't know if you're, you're married like I am or not. 
or maybe in a serious relationship or something like that. See, I've been married for almost seven years now, and uh, I still remember the very first big fight my wife and I had back when we were still dating. Now, to me, the sign of a, a, a real solid relationship isn't necessarily where the two of you want to head to, but it's all the stuff you made it through that got you to where you are and are still currently working through. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the sign of a relationship is can you make it through a whole bunch of stuff? Can you sit in the stuff that you're in now and continue to be committed to one another as you walk through it? And some of you are sitting here today and you're like, hey, baby, listen to him. Pastor up there talking about a big fight he done had with his wife. Isn't that cute? Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful that we don't fight like that? Isn't it so great that we've been together this whole time and we ain't never had one of those big knockdowns? I love you so much. Yeah, you're laughing. You know why? Because if you ain't had a big knockdown, drag out fight yet, it's coming. It's coming. I still remember the first one my wife and I had. We were dating at the time. It was early in our relationship, and we decided to cook a meal together. We were standing in her kitchen. Oh, Noah's right. We're standing in her kitchen. We decided to cook quesadillas together. So I begin looking in the refrigerator for all the things that you need to make a proper quesadilla. And as I'm looking, I'm coming up empty. I'm not finding everything. I turn to my beautiful girlfriend at the time who had eventually been my wife, and this was the first sign that I knew we would make it together. I turned to her, and I said, hey, darling. Where's all the stuff for the quesadilla? And I look over and she says, well, I have it right here, love of my life. I look over and what she has is the bag of tortillas, a block of cheese and a knife. And she's cutting slices of cheese off the block and she's putting it into a tortilla that is folded over on itself. And then I watch as she takes said tortilla, pops it into the microwave on a plate and puts it on high for 30 seconds. I said, what are you doing? She looked back at me and she says, I'm making a quesadilla. I said, no, you are not. What you are making is not a quesadilla. It is an abomination. Now, where is the stuff to make a quesadilla? She says, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be simple anymore? I said, simple? Let me put it to you simply. You're not making a quesadilla. Let me show you how to do it. She says, what do you think you need for a quesadilla? I said, I will explain it to you. You need as follows. Tortillas. At least three different kinds of cheese if you're going to make it proper. Guacamole, sour cream, grilled chicken, and or seasoned beef. And then, most importantly, a large stick of butter with which to rub all over the backside of that tortilla. And then you need a pan, a frying pan. Why? Because quesadillas deserve to be fried. Thank you. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. The first is so you can be on my side. And the second is to illustrate this. Perspective is everything. And in a relationship... It's amazing to me how two people can look at the same thing from two opposing perspectives. And it's a lot like God. See, God sees things in a certain way, and we see things in a certain way. And too many of us look at the same thing that God's looking at and think that he's the one who needs to change his perspective, when it's really us that needs to change our perspective. See, we keep looking at God thinking, God, when you change your perspective and see it the way I do, I need you to understand, see, my place of work doesn't work like that. You don't understand. You don't see things the way that I do. You don't know these people I work with like I do. God, you don't understand my family like I do. God, you don't know my wife like I do. You don't see my husband like I do. And God's looking at you and he's saying, maybe, 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 maybe I don't see it like you do because I'm just thinking outside the box here. Because I'm God and you're not. I'm just saying. 
turn to someone and say, God doesn't see it like you do. And that's a good thing. Some of you are quickly looking for your spouse right now. God doesn't see it how you do, and that's a good thing. Pretty sure he sees it like I do. Be careful with that. My wife's not here. She's watching at home, but don't tell her. And it's just like that moment, you know? It's like that moment when, when, when the disciples were with Jesus. It was, he, was, he was up, and he's getting ready to die, right? And he, he turns to the disciples. He's mentioned it before. He says, hey, you guys don't understand something. Because I've said this before, but it's kind of gone like this. So I'm going to say it again. I'm about to die. I'm about to die for you and for the world. And I've got to lay down my life in order for this thing to play out right. And Peter hears this. And for whatever reason, this is the first time it clicks. And he goes back to Jesus and says, hey, uh, can we talk about something real quick? Here's the thing. Great message. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, here's, the, here's the deal, though. I have a problem with what you said in the middle. See, you said that you have to die. And, and see, I'm not okay with that because I don't think you see things the way that I see it. And here's the deal. We've been going about this ministry thing for like three years now. And I've been paying attention to other successful ministries. And what I've come to find out is, through my own perspective, is that if you want a ministry to really take off and really be successful, it's got to go on longer than three years. And it especially cannot end with the leader's death. And so this whole I'm going to die thing just doesn't work for me. And besides that, I was hoping that you and I could get together and practice that whole walking on water thing because I ain't quite got that down yet. And I was hoping we could work on that a little bit more. So if you could just postpone this whole idea of dying. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Looks back at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. See, what Jesus understood is perspective is everything. And Jesus had the father's perspective. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, I have my father's perspective. You don't. Your perspective is out of free, fear. See, all you have is your fears about what you might lose if I'm no longer here with you. You don't see things the way that I see it. See, I understand that unless I die for the, your sins and the sins of the world, this thing is going to turn upside down in a bad way. You don't understand that in order for the Holy Spirit to come, I have to go. And I know you don't want it. I know that what you think is, is you're doing something that is ministry-minded. Because if you were to ask Peter, he would have sound like a well-thought-out, reasonable, logical, ministry-minded individual. He would have come at you with, there's more people to feed. There's more poor to, to clothe. There, there's more sick to heal. There's so many things that we have to do together, Lord. But Jesus looks at him and he says, listen. There's always going to be poor. There's always going to be hungry. And trust me when I tell you, I'm going to leave. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to be the one doing this stuff. You're going to be the one feeding and clothing and taking care of and healing and praying for and ministering to. That's going to be your job. But you got the wrong perspective. You only see things a little bit. I see everything. See, too often we believe our fears are greater than our God. I was at Hume Lake recently, and I heard the most brilliant thing in one of the dramas they were presenting to the students. In one of the dramas, one character turns to the other one, and he says this. Listen to this. You may want to write this down. This is what he says. He says, our fears are not greater than our God. They're just a little bit louder sometimes. Our fears are not greater than our God. They're just a little bit louder sometimes. And isn't that always how fear operates? At a high volume. God comes into our life and he says, this is what I want you to do. And immediately a fear chimes in with why it's not going to work. God comes to you and he says, I want you to share your faith with your boss. And fear screams at you. You can't share your faith with your boss. You work in the public school system. You want to be out of a job? And then what kind of ministry will you have when you are jobless? God turns to you and says, I want you to share your faith with your family. 
and fear screams. Are you kidding? They can't stand the idea of Jesus. And you want to go in there talking about him? What do you want to do? Ruin the relationship? Never talk to your brother or sister again? Fear can be very loud, can it? I learned an important lesson about fear recently. I was on the disc golf course at Hume Lake. See, I go to Hume Lake with students. And uh, one student in particular, we, we have a couple of traditions. The first tradition is we enter the belly flop contest every year together, and it's a synchronized belly flop contest. And I don't want to brag, but you are looking at a two-time defending champion of the belly flop contest at Hume Lake. All right? It's kind of a big deal. Okay? I put it on my resume. Anyways, um, the other thing that me and this student do is we do a lot of disc golfing together. And disc golfing, if you've never done it before, it's just like regular golf, except instead of clubs and a ball, you use frisbee discs, all right? Now we go out on this disc golf course, and I'm a competitive guy, but I'm not one of those guys that initiates trash talking. However, that doesn't mean I won't trash talk. It just means you've got to be the one to bring it out of me. And, and, and this student that I go with, his name is Jeffrey, and, and Jeffrey, he, he's kind of a trash talker. And he enjoys to kind of jaw at me the whole time that we're going. So we went out to this disc golf course, and we're going back and forth, and he's trash talking me, and I'm giving it right back to him, and we're going through it. And, and every time I go to take a shot, he'll cough or he'll sneeze or he'll talk about how ugly my face is when I try and shoot and stuff. And then when it's his turn, I'll do some of the same stuff. And then we're just going back and forth. And finally we get to this one hole, and, and I go ahead and go before Jeffrey this time. Usually he goes. And I go up to make my shot, and sure enough, he makes jokes and says something while I take my shot. But this time I, I, I throw the disc out there, and it lands really close to the hole and I just look at Jeffrey while I walk back and Jeffrey looks at me and says well I guess I'll just have to do better than you and he gets up there and he does one of those fake out things to see if I'm going to say something when he's taking a shot I don't say anything I just stand back shakes it out clears it up and he releases his disc and it goes in the exact opposite direction of where it's supposed to (laughs) I'm pretty sure I heard girls behind us scream in fear as the disc was coming towards them Jeffrey sinks his head and his shoulders drop and he starts walking away and I'm not saying nothing. I got a big old smile on my face because I know he knows what just happened. We start walking away and I just turn to him and I say, hey, Jeffrey. And immediately, without hesitation, Jeffrey looks back at me and he says, Eric, you shut your big pie hole. (laughs) You know what that taught me about fear? I think some of us need to have a bigger faith in God and look at fear in the face and tell fear exactly what Jeffrey told me on that disc golf course. See, every time God goes to move us and that voice of fear speaks up in our life, I think we need to look back at fear and say, fear, you need to shut your big pie hole. Amen? See, Jeffrey had the right idea. The application needs to be for us towards fear. See, fear is really good at being loud, isn't it? It prevents us from living out our faith and spreading the gospel in our world. Fear is just like this chain that ties us down and holds us back from our potential. And you weren't meant to be chained by fear. Did you know that? Did you know that you were not meant to be chained by fear? Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. What kind of full life are we supposed to have if we're constantly being held back by the fears of what if? We can't have a full life if we're constantly worried about what might happen if we pursue Christ closer than we are now. You remember that story of the rich young man? He had it all together, didn't he? He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've done it all. I was in Awanas. 
I got my little vest hanging up in my closet with the jewels on it. I've memorized the verses. I know the worship songs. I'm a regular Sunday attender. I've been to the Joyce Myers conference. I've been a part of the Beth Moore Bible study. I've done it all. I lead programs. I'm a part of the greeting team. I do the parking ministry. Jesus, I've done it all. And for whatever reason, I still feel like there's something lacking in me. So what is it? What else do I need? And Jesus looks back at him and he says, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And what did he do? He walked away sad. Because he had a lot that he felt to lose. See, he walked away, and at the root of that decision was really fear. See, in this man's heart, he believed that Jesus wasn't actually good enough or big enough or God enough to take care of him. And I wonder how many of you here today have wrestled with that same thought. God, I can't, I can't follow you the way you want me to because I just, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that you're not good enough. I'm afraid that you're not big enough. I'm afraid that you're not God enough for me to trust, for me to follow. See, this rich young man, because of his perspective, the young man couldn't see that Jesus really was big enough, great enough, and God enough to care for him. So some of you are paying attention right now and you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with Ecclesiastes? We're going to find out. See, if you've been paying attention, we've been in Ecclesiastes, which is, if you haven't realized, the most depressing book in all of Scripture. And this is a book that is written by a man who has attempted to find meaning in life apart from God. See, he's done all he can to push and reject God out and still find answers to life and meaning to life. And he's finding, as we get towards the end of this book, that life without God is indeed meaningless. It's vanity. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. And, and perhaps, perhaps someone out here just identified more with the description of the author of Ecclesiastes than with everything I've said up till now. Maybe you're here today, and that's the first time that you've identified with something. And you're looking at yourself, and you're saying, man, I get that. I get that. I get what it means to go through life trying to find meaning without God. Because I've done that. You've chased every bottle. You've chased every pill. You've chased every drug. You've chased every relationship, every promotion, every account number in increasing your bank levels. You've chased every, tr every tweet and every like and every social media status symbol that you can. You've chased every click and every website and every image and every video that you could possibly find. And just like the author in Ecclesiastes, you've come up empty time and time and time and time again. You've been in the arms of another person after person after person. And nowhere in their arms have you found the answer you're looking for. Nowhere in any website have you found the meaning that you've been wanting. Nowhere in any drug or drink or pornographic image have you found the thing that you thought you would find in those things. And like the author of Ecclesiastes, you're here today, and you're not exactly sure why you're here, but you're here. And for the first time, you've identified with something, because you've tried to chase meaning without God, and you've come up empty. And you've realized this life is meaningless, and unless God has something for me, I'm about out of here. Well, let me tell you something. God has something for you. Amen? God has something for you. Would you turn to someone? They need to hear this. They really need to hear this. You might be sitting next to that person I'm talking about. They need to hear you say to them, God has something for you.
God has something for you. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes, and I promise this will tie in. Watch this. Verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where that tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones of the woman of a, uh, into the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let them remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let me break this down a little bit for you, and then we're going to take an unexpected turn. You're not going to see this one coming, all right? Hold on. When you read this, most scholars and commentators look at this portion of Ecclesiastes, and they see the author trying to find meaning in life without God, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to find meaning in life without God, then what it ultimately boils down to is everything that you accumulate here, everything that you build up, all of your wealth, all of your status, all of your importance amongst other people, that's ultimately what matters. Because when you die, it is over, and it's staying here, and you're just gone. And it just doesn't matter. So if you're going to make this thing the most important thing, then you better be good at making more of this thing. So let me give you some financial advice on how to make more of this stuff. And so what chapter 11 is, is really a lot of financial advice. You look at verse 1 and it says, cast your bread upon the waters and in many days it will return to you. Here's what that means. Take your money, take your finances, take your resources and invest it out. Wait a long time before you pull it back into yourself. It will take a while. Don't be impatient with it because when it does come back, it will come back with more. And then in verse 2 he says, give to seven or even to eight because you don't know which one of these is going to be good or not. What he's saying is this, diversify your investments. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Instead, give it to as many as you can and as many as you're comfortable with and then give it to a few more because you don't know which one of these things is actually going to pan out. Now, I've been paying attention to the world a little bit and I have good news for you. If you're taking financial advice, within the next four years, I expect very little change to things like oil prices and the stock market and the housing market. So go ahead and invest. Right. I'm just kidding. All right. Do not take financial advice from me, because here's the thing. As much as you can come here and, and, and read this and get financial advice out of it. My my guess is you didn't come here this morning looking for a class in financial peace university for me. Am I correct in assuming that that isn't exactly what you came here for? And let's be honest, I'm a middle school pastor, so it's less financial peace university and more like financial peace junior college. All right. Now, we can keep going through this portion of Scripture, and I can keep giving you the financial advice, which is pretty decent advice in the Scripture. But here's the thing. See, I keep looking at this, and I see a guy that keeps trying to exclude God, exclude God, exclude God. But I keep seeing God screaming from within this passage. I keep seeing the voice of God with instructions to his church about who we are and what we need to be doing all throughout this portion of Scripture. Ready to go down that turn I told you about? Check this out. 
Turn to Matthew chapter 14. See, as much as this author in Ecclesiastes is trying to get rid of God, I keep seeing the voice of God for his church in this. And he wants us to pay attention to this other story with the disciples that happens a long time later in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. This is what he says. When Jesus heard what had happened, speaking of his good friend John the Baptist being beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And it's amazing to me that people could follow Jesus on foot when he's on a boat. There are some people that really want to get to Jesus. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You've got to pay attention to that. Because when you see that, for some of us, that's incredible. For some of us, it's kind of frustrating. Because if you notice what Jesus did, they came to him and they were still messed up. They were still sick and they were still sinning. And he saw them and what was Jesus' reaction? Compassion. And some of us need to hear this. That Jesus' first reaction to our sin and the sins of others is not rejection. It's not instruction. It's compassion. See, a lot of us are under the impression that in order to bring people closer into the proximity of Jesus, we first have to fix their morality. Jesus doesn't need people's morality to be corrected before he'll accept a proximity with them. And it continues in verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Did you catch what happened there? See, the disciples started looking around at their situation, their circumstances and their surroundings. They started taking stock of it, you know. They started at looking at what they had and what they didn't have, and they realized that they better go to Jesus and correct some things that are going on because they have a different perspective than he does. And if they don't say anything, he's just going to keep going, healing and preaching and all this stuff. And then before long, things are going to get out of hand. If God keeps going the way he's going, things are going to get out of hand. <laughs> maybe I just realized maybe that's what we need. We need things more out of hand. Amen? We need things to get out of hand because of God's hands. So... Disciples get an idea, and one of them goes up to Jesus, and they say, Hey, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you uh, realize this, but I've got some unique perspective that I need to share with you. See, uh, this is a remote place. See, the disciples started looking around at their surroundings. They're like, Hey, I don't know if you realize this, but this is a remote place. And maybe for some of you, you're looking around at your surroundings, and you realize that God has taken you into a very remote place right now. Some of you feel like that the place that you're in is a pretty remote place. God, you don't understand. Everyone I work with is an atheist. This is a remote place. God, you don't understand. My next door neighbors are homosexuals. This is a remote place and you're asking me to witness to them? God, you don't understand. My sister won't even talk to me anymore. We're in a remote place. God, you don't understand what's going on. This is a remote place. The person I'm married to isn't trying anymore. I feel like I'm in a remote place. God, I just moved here and nobody knows or cares that I'm here. This is a remote place. God, the person I'm dating doesn't place their faith in you. I'm in a remote place. And you look around and you see that the place you're in is remote. And you don't feel like God can work in this place. That nothing good can come in this place. The disciples, knowing that Jesus wasn't easily deterred, they decided to double down on their excuses. And so they took a look at their surroundings, realized it was a remote place, and then they started talking to Jesus about their situation. And they said, Jesus, you see, the situation is, the situation is, these people are going to get hungry, and they're going to want something from us. So you've got to send them away to go take care of themselves. 
God, you got to do something so that these people can get what they need. See, the situation is these people have needs and you got to do something to fulfill those needs. Huh. Maybe you're looking around at your situation and you're expecting God to change something so that the people he's asking you to minister to can get what they need. God, I, I can't forgive my coworkers. See, the situation is they're a jerk. And I'm pretty sure they worship the devil. And besides that, the situation is if I invited them to my Bible study where everyone knows that I talk about them in thinly veiled prayer requests, then I wouldn't be able to do that in front of them. So, see, the situation is you're going to have to do something in their life before I can bring them to my Bible study. God, I can't give to this homeless person. See, the situation is I'm living paycheck to paycheck and I haven't budgeted for this homeless guy. Plus, he'll probably just use it on drugs or alcohol anyways. God, I can't pray for that person. See, the situation is they're a complete stranger. I don't even know them. And besides that, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't know all the fancy prayers. I'm bad at praying out loud. I'm the last person that you want praying for this person. See, that's what the situation is. We start going to God and we say, God, I'm in a remote place. Nothing good can happen here. God, the situation is you're going to have to do something to help the people that you called me towards. And Jesus replied to the disciples the same way that he does to us. Look at what he says, verse 16. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Hey, Jesus, this is a remote place and the situation is it's getting late. Send them away so they can go get some food. You give them something to eat. Hold that thought. Hey, um, I told him about the situation and the remoteness of this place, and he said that we got to give him something to eat. Any y'all bring any food? I didn't bring any food. Did you bring any food? I didn't bring any food. Were we supposed to bring food? I don't know if we're supposed to bring food. He just said feed them, all right? Now, what do you have? A Snickers bar? Anything? Nothing? No? All right, what are we going to do? We got to get some food. Um, okay. Uh, here's what I remember, uh, seeing a boy over there, he's got a basket in that basket. I smell something. I'm pretty sure there's food in there. Here's what James Peter, oh, over here. All right, here's the plan. All right, listen, that boy has some food. James, you're going to go over to that boy. You're going to do the quarter behind the ear trick and distract him. All right, Peter, you're going to come from behind. You're going to take the basket away from him without him knowing. All right. Now, James, this is very important. You leave the quarter with him. I am not going to tick off Jesus by stealing a boy's lunch. All right. That is not what I need on my record. So you go ahead and give him the quarter. Oh, wait, 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 before you go. Go ask Judas for a couple extra pieces of silver to give to the boy as well. I'm pretty sure he's good for it, all right? Trust me, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's got plenty in there. All right, so go, okay. Quarter behind the Okay, give me the back. What, what do we got? All right, one, two, two of those. Okay, five of those. All right, five of those, two fish. How many, how many people we got? Oh, it's <laughs> a lot of people. See, if I cut it diagonally. Maybe if the fish were filleted, the sushi, we could do bread, sushi, filet. All right, hold on, hold on. Give me, give me the basket. All right. Hey, Jesus, um, here's the thing. Uh, okay, I told you how remote this is, and I told you the situation we're in, and I know those didn't mean anything to you, but you have to understand our circumstances. Now, see, the circumstances is um, I only got these five loaves of bread and two fish, and as you can see, there's a whole lot of someones to feed with just a little bit of something, you know? And, and so I don't think we can do it. So you may want to take my first plan because I have a different perspective than you, I think. And Jesus looks back and watch what happens next. Jesus says this, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate 
and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. You see, Jesus isn't deterred by our situations. Jesus isn't afraid of our circumstances. Jesus isn't worried about our situations. And we keep looking at him saying, Jesus, this perspective that I have, it means you've got to do something and change something and and shift all this stuff before I can do this. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how this works. I don't adapt to your perspective. You've got to come over and see things the way I do. Because the disciples looked at Jesus and said, listen, there's a whole lot that has to be done with what little I have. And Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, you do it. You give them something to eat. You give me what little you think you have because I've got a long history of doing a whole lot with a whole little. And what's great about this is you don't get the credit. I get the credit. And that's how it's supposed to be. So you bring the bread. You bring the bread. See, I've deposited something in you. You know what that is? It's the bread of life. You have in you the bread of life. So you bring the bread and you take it to the people with need and you give them something to eat. But too often in the church, we got this Ecclesiastes 11 type mindset where we start looking at the clouds and evaluating the wind and seeing the trees and, oh, that might fall in the north and that might fall in the south. And I got to wait to see what's going to happen before I go out and I give it to somebody. And Jesus says, listen. If you take that Ecclesiastes 11 type mindset and you think you've got to wait before situations, circumstances, and surroundings shift before you're active in your faith, guess what you'll never have? An active faith. As great as the church is, as beautiful as the bride of Christ is, as wonderful as the hands and feet of Jesus are, it doesn't mean anything. If they're not active in a broken and desperate and needing world. You have the bread of life. So when you look at Ecclesiastes 11.1 and it says, cast your bread upon the waters. I don't see someone giving financial advice. I see someone giving faith advice. Saying, you bring the bread and you cast it out as far as you can. And in a while, it's going to return with a great yield. And in verse 2. When it says give to seven or even to eight, I don't see someone giving investment advice. I see someone giving faith advice saying don't just give it to a few that you're comfortable with. Give it to the ones you're even uncomfortable with. And in verse four, when it says those who evaluate the wind and pay attention to the clouds, they don't sow and they don't reap. Nothing's ever going to happen. I don't see advice for growing crops and growing financial bank accounts. I see advice for how we expand our faith. Because if all we do is evaluate whether or not someone's going to receive it well, all we're going to do is store this bread of life that we have in us. And it's going to grow old and moldy and useless. We are the church, the bearers of the bread of life. And it's time we send that stuff out on the waters. Amen? Amen. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your church, for your people. Father, thank you for your bread. God, thank you for depositing that in us and trusting us with it. God, would we not come up empty with that? Father, would we not allow our situation, circumstances, and our surroundings to prevent us from sending it out as far as it needs to go? 
God, in our places of work, would we bring the bread of life? God, in our families and our homes, would we bring the bread of life? In our neighborhoods and our, our, our teams and our schools and everywhere we go, would we bring the bread of life, Father? Because we are your hands and feet and we accept that challenge. God, shift our perspective to yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed weekend.